Good evening, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. Next five weeks on Wednesday night uh, is called A League of Their Own. Um, the least creative person I know, Steve Wheeler, is the one who came up with the title. <laughs> and everybody loves it. So, uh, Anyway, five important women of the Bible. Tonight we're going to look at Esther. There's going to be a lot of reading tonight. Uh, because I just think the storyteller in Esther does such a good job. I want us to read as much of it as possible. So it would be helpful if you had a Bible in front of you or your phone in front of you to be able to read along. Um, I'm doing all of tonight on Esther. Esther is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I just love this. There's so much in it. Um, and there's so much intrigue. Next week we're going to talk about Abigail. Next week I'm going to talk for maybe 15 minutes and then Stacy Barrett is going to be invited up and I'm going to interview her and we're going to have a conversation about uh, the qualities and characteristics of Abigail and some of the things that, that uh, Abigail would bring up in contemporary culture today. And we've gone over those um, questions together, uh, probably spent two hours doing that and I think it's going to be really good. Stacy's really sharp. And I'm hoping, my goal is to just tee her up and let her kind of go. Um, then on the 26th, the third week, I'm going to do Ruth. Again, um, I just, I, I want to do Ruth. I like the storytelling. Again, um, Ruth is considered one of the greatest stories ever told, um, which is fun. And then on the 3rd of May, we're going to do Deborah. And uh, I'm going to do that similar to with Stacy. I'm going to do it with Michelle Hutchins. Maybe you know her. Uh, she's been a part of this church for a number of years, and so I'm going to interview her after about 15 minutes, and we're going to talk about Deborah and uh, women in leadership and things like that. And then on the 10th, uh, the fifth woman is wisdom, because when, uh, wisdom is personified in the Bible as, um, as a woman. And I'm going to interview the venerable, I have no idea what the word venerable means, but I'm pretty sure it's positive. Ann Wheeler is going to be doing wisdom with me the leader of our deacons, and so that's going to be a great night. So uh, get your Bible. Let me give you some background on the book of Esther. Um, if you remember, we just went through Isaiah 40 through 55, talking about the exile that the Jews were going to be going into starting in 605 B.C. That exile ended in 539 B.C. We talked a little bit about that uh, in uh, chapter 51, I think it was, of uh, Isaiah. Uh, about how Cyrus from Persia was going to come in and, and end the exile for the Jews. At that point in 539 uh, B.C., many of the Jews went back to Jerusalem to rebuild, and you can read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But not everybody, not all of the um, exiles went back to Jerusalem. Some of them actually decided to move even further east to the capital city of Persia, which was uh, Susa, and the reason they moved there, uh, by the way, uh, per Persia is modern-day Iran, so um, uh, Babylonia, Babylon was modern-day uh, Baghdad, modern-day Iraq, Persia is modern-day Iran, so some people moved further to the east to Susa, the capital of Persia, for two reasons. One, after 70 years, they had kind of lost their connection their feeling of connection to Jerusalem and Judah, they figured they could be God's people anywhere now, so they didn't necessarily have to move back to Jerusalem. They just wanted to leave Babylon. But second of all, they, they also, and probably were correct about this, those that moved to Susa, uh, they figured that their economic prospects were much greater in Susa than they were in Jerusalem. 
And they were probably right about that because Susa was up and running. They had to rebuild Jerusalem and a lot of sacrifices was going to be tough. Uh, so Esther is the book that is about the, mi- the migration to the east. And, and so um, the story of Esther is, is rooted in that. And so is this guy named Mordecai, who is her uncle. And he is also a key part of the story. By the way, there's the woman we're going to be talking to on the third night. Michelle Hutchins right back there. So, yeah. And uh, anyway, um, Wednesday nights is when the uh, Stacy's uh, RC meets, and I believe. And so what, if I understand it correctly, they're actually going to be, um, their whole RC is going to come next week to, <laughs> to you know, raz Stacy. So that'll be a lot of fun. So uh, the years that Esther took place is 486 B.C. to 464 B.C., about um, 25 years. Uh, the years of Ezra, which was the rebuilding of Jerusalem, took place kind of from 536 to 455 B.C. And then Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, um, was uh, 436 to 433 And so the story of Esther runs concurrent with the latter part of Ezra. So while the last part of Ezra is going on, this story of Esther is going on in Susa. Uh, The book was likely written about four years after all the events took place in 460 B.C. We're not 100% sure who wrote it, but most surmise that it was Mordecai, Esther's uncle or cousin, depends on how you look at it, um, uh, who wrote it, whom we will, will meet in this story. He's a big part of this story. Um, the story is also referenced by many in Jewish, Greek, and Roman uh, history and by Jewish, Greek, and Roman uh, authors, which vouches for its authenticity and, uh, and its details as well. So we know that this all took place. And then uh, the name Esther, uh, does anybody know what the name Esther means? Anybody know that? The name means star, star. So that's kind of fun. As well, I like these. these, All these Hebrew names have have meanings, and I like to look at that. So, again, get a Bible. We're going to read a lot, and I'll do my best to explain what's going on to give a little bit of commentary as well, starting in chapter one. By the way, one of the reasons I love the book of Esther is that there are some wonderful names in the book of Esther, and you can actually pronounce most of them, which is exciting. Um, which is hard to do in some of the other books in the Old Testament. But uh, I think some of the greatest names ever. So I get very excited about the name. So starting in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 9. Now in the days of Ahuserus, that's it right there. I'm not calling him Ahuserus anymore after that because he's also known as Xerxes. And Xerxes is easier to say And I also have a nickname for him. This is the king of Persia. I have a nickname for him. His name is Xerxes the Jerxes. Okay? And you'll find out why in just a minute. So in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, so the whole known world at the time, they were the superpower, the empire of the world at the time, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, so Susa is the city, the citadel is the area of, the, uh, of where the royals lived. It's, it's almost a smaller city within the city where all of, the, um, all of, all of uh, Xerxes's cabinet and workers and everything would live in there. And then there was a greater city and then there were the city walls and people sitting outside of the city walls as well. 
So um, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. This was very common for ancient kings to give these feasts so they could show off their uh, wealth and their prowess. This is a really common thing in ancient time that kings would do this. So the army of, the per of, of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were all before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. This was a party for 180. Anybody been to a party that lasted 180 days? Anybody attend Arizona State University? <laughs> okay. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all of the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven more days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Then jump down to verse 9. Queen Vashti, his wife, also gave a feast for the women of the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. So, these were Southern Baptist parties. Men were doing... A I'm kidding about that, but they, okay, the assumption was that Xerxes was just with the men, and maybe a concubine or two, and then all the women folk were somewhere else having their party, so Vashti's having her own party. That's an important detail, though, that they were separated, okay? So, verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day of this last party, so this is now 187 straight days of partying, on that seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with mine, he commanded Memucan, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. That ah, Carcass, I like that name right there. Carcass. Carcass Switzer, Switzer, if we ever had a son. That's who we'd, what we'd name him. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Look at. Now, let me just stop there for a second, okay? So he's showing off the splendor of his kingdom, all of his riches, and now he's decided, well, they got to see my hot wife too. That's essentially what he's doing, okay? And, and let me ask this question. Why did you have to be a eunuch in order to serve in the king's court? Anybody want to? Come on, bud, you know why. That you're not going to mess with his ladies. That's exactly right. So if you are going to be lucky enough to serve in the king's court, yeah, okay, not fun. Anyway, but then look what, so he sends for Vashti, and you got to come. And, and here you go. Most Hebrew scholars will tell you that little detail with her crown, that little detail in the ancient Hebrew actually means more than just with her crown. What does it mean? Anybody? With only her crown. Are you getting the gist of this now? Okay. But now watch what Vashti does in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king, at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and anger burned within him. So... In this series, I'm just wondering if maybe we should have six women that we should honor, and Vashti should be also one of them, because <laughs> she refused the king's request here. Oh, Frank, wives got to submit to their husbands. Okay, all right, I get it. Anyway, the stage is getting ready to be set. Look at um, verses 13 through 21. Then the king said to the wise men, so he gathered the wise men around, 
who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men uh, next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marish, Mersana, and Memukin. Now, Memukin is actually, if you look in your spice rack, I'm sure you can find a little bottle of, of Memukin, all right? Anyway, the seven princes of Persian media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of the king, Xerxes, delivered by the eunuchs. What should we do to her, guys? Then Memukin, Spice Boy, said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all of the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble men of Persia and Media, who have heard the queen's, of the queen's behavior, will do the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from before him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Do you think these guys had some personal agenda behind this order here? I'm sorry? Yeah, so we got to keep these women in line. I'm looking at all these women here. We got to keep you guys in line. I'm telling you, man. And we let Vashti get away with this. This is bad. This is bad news for all of us, okay? And you notice in there, you're going to see this language a lot. The, the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed, not even the king, who is sovereign over everything. He, once a law is signed with the signet ring, in, in Persia, it cannot be repealed. That's an important part of the rest of the, uh, of the story. Okay? So, verse 20. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. <laughs> He's sitting around smoking cigars going, yeah, this sounds good. Okay? Um, and the king did what Mamikins proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every, uh, uh, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So, stage is set now for Esther to enter the story. And what's important to understand is that between verse, uh, chapters 1 and 2, four years pass. Four years passed. Does anybody know historically what happened during these four years? Babylon? I'm sorry? Babylon? The what? Babylon fell? No, this is after Babylon fell. Okay. No. Um, now, again, I would never watch such a movie, but there's a movie called 300 that tells the story. Anybody remember that movie? Okay. So Xerxes goes out to battle these 300 Spartans, these Greeks, and, and he tries everything, and these 300 pretty much whip up on them. And, and he's doing this for a couple of years and can't seem to win, and it's, 
it's humiliating and he's worn out and so he comes back after this uh, humiliating defeat and he's feeling really he's having a very large pity party for himself at this point so picking up uh, chapter 2 after these things when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, meaning against Vashti, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what she had been declared, uh, decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king because he can't have Vashti anymore because it's the law of the Medes and Persians, which can't be repealed. So they said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint Officers in all the provinces of, of his kingdom to be, gather all the beautiful young virgins of the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let their young women who uh, and let the young women woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So for a year, he had different women coming in to be with him, sleep with him. He would evaluate them and then send them out. And one of these women was going to, quote, win this contest, quote, win this contest. Okay, so that's what's happening. And he's going, yeah, okay, sounds good. Verse five, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimi, the son of Kish, son of Kish, that's an important detail right there, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as, her, as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young, women, the young woman pleased Haggai and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with the seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known to her people made known her people or kindred so she didn't let anybody know she was Jewish which might have been a problem uh, in that in that situation um, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known and every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was was and what was happening to her now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Xerxes after being 12 months under the regulations for the, for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, the, woman would, the woman, women, each woman would spend six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments so that they could be beautified. This, there's no lifetime fitness, none of that, okay? This was just spices and oils and food, okay? When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace, so whatever she thought would please the king. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem. <laughs> this is the 
uh, already been with the king, Haram, in custody of Shazgaz. It's the other king's eunuch, Shazgaz. Anybody want to name their kid Shazgaz? That'd be a cool name. Okay. Um, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So they went from being virgins, now they're concubines. You see how that works? So there's a lot being said without being said directly. Are you catching all of this now? Okay, I hope so. I hope you're good readers and you're getting this. Okay. Um, she would, um, and she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther wins. Then the king gave a great feast. He's into feasts. He gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes in the pro to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. I'm ready for a remission of taxes myself. Okay. Now, the plot thickens in verses 19 through 23. This becomes a little preview to something very important that happens later on. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when uh, she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. So a coup, a rebellion. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated <coughs> and found to be true, <coughs> excuse me, the men were both hanged on the gallows. I'll explain the gallows later on because that becomes important too. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this has been recorded in the king's histories. So he thwarts, Mordecai thwarts a plot against the king. Now, chapter 3. Enter Haman. How many of you know that during the um, uh, Jewish annual holiday of Purim, which was in March this year, <clears throat> which is why we have the Haman hat cookies here. If you didn't get a cookie, you need to come up and get a cookie later. Okay, I'll explain those two later. How many of you know that during the, um, during the uh, festival of Purim, when they read the story of Esther, what happens every time the name Haman is read? Anybody know? The entire congregation boos. This has been going on for 2,500 years. They read Esther, and the minute somebody says Haman, reads Haman. There you go. Boo. Okay, so do it once or twice, and then you'll get bored with it, and we can just move on. Okay, but I want you to do it once or twice. Okay. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman. Very good. Here you go, the Agagite. Mordecai is related distantly to Kish. Haman is related to Agag, okay? The son of Hamedatha. 
and advanced Haman and set him on the throne above all the officials who were with him. So he made him his chief operating officer, number two in all of the kingdom. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king... For the king had so commanded him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, they could not listen. He, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Oh. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Amon was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. That would include all the way into Judah. Okay? So this book of Esther has misogyny, Racism and genocide. Well, how do you not like a book like this? It's got everything. Okay? So it's pretty wild. Now, why was there bad blood specifically between Mordecai and Haman? Well, if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is told to wipe out the um, Amalekites and King Agag completely. And Saul did not do that. Now, Agag was eventually killed by Samuel, yes, But uh, in the meantime, some of Agag's uh, progeny got away. Saul let them get away. So the line of Agag lived on. Who was Saul's father? Kish. Kish, right. So here's Saul and Agag, you know, what, 400, 500 years later, still playing out. These guys don't like each other. It's the Old Testament. Now, only a few of us are going to get this reference, but it's the Old Testament uh, version of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Okay? Oh, more than, more than I thought would get that reference. Anyway, so that's what's, that's what's going on. So now, um, let's look at verses uh, 7 through 11 in chapter 3. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan. Now, before um, it was the month of Nisan, what was it called? Anybody? Dotson, thank you very much. Okay. <clears throat> That's an old trader joke. <laughs> you young people are like, what? I don't get it. Yeah, okay, look it up on the internet. All right. Anyway, this is the 12th year now of King Xerxes. They cast Pur. This is where we get Purim, the, the holiday of Purim. So they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. When Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other (coughs) people, and they do not keep keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them as it seems good to you. So we're going to have another law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. By the way, listen to this again. There is a certain people scattered abroad 
uh, and dispersed among people in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people. They do not keep the king's laws. So the king does not, it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. Let's eliminate them. Does that sound at all familiar? Okay. The Nazis, Germany. Okay. All the Jews in, in Nazi Germany, what did they call Hitler behind his back? Haman. They refer to him as a modern day. Hey, they say he's Haman. He's Haman. Okay. So there's all this history. So there's going to be this decree. The decree could not be revoked even um, by the king, which is a problem as well. Um, it's according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. The decree was written prohibiting um, the, uh, the Jews from fighting back. They just had to take it. This is the way the decree was written. If you read the rest of um, chapter 3, you would see that. Um, uh, the decree was written that in 12 months, there was going to be this 12-month waiting period, but everybody would know, all the Jews everywhere would be attacked by the king's armies, and they could not fight back. They would be uh, eliminated. They'd be wiped off the face of the earth. That was the decree. And so there was much um, weeping and mourning in, in, in all of the nations. But this also allows the other parts of the story to be played out, that, the, that there's going to be this 12-month delay before they kill all the Jews. And by the way, that was the result of the casting of the purr, the casting of the lots, told Haman, you can do this, but this is when you're supposed to do it. So he goes to the king and says, we're going to do this, but the purr, the lots, say that we should do it in 12 months. So they have 12 months for the rest of this story uh, to play out. Also, Xerxes had no idea he was being played at this point. But eventually he's going to find out, and it's not going to end well for Haman. That's a little spoiler alert. Okay. So what can be done seems like all is lost. Look at chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, signs of mourning and grief, and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai is now feeling guilt for what his single action of not bowing down to Haman has done now to all of his kinsmen, all of the Jews. That's why he's upset about this. Okay? Now, part of the reason Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman is because he was an Agagite. But part of the reason also is that no Jew bows down to any human. They only bow down to Yahweh. So there's that religious part, too. That's why Haman talked about, you know, the laws of these people. Uh, it doesn't profit you to, uh, to tolerate them, okay? So you also can't, uh, you're not allowed to go around the king at all in any sort of mourning clothes because you're not allowed to ever make the king sad, okay? So if you're the president of the United States, you just tell people, look, don't ever bring me any, any don't ever do anything around me, don't ever bring me anything that's going to make me sad. That's the way I'm supposed to be treated. Okay? So, chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, all of this scuttlebutt now makes its way to Esther, who's the queen. She finds out what's going on. And so she sends a eunuch, one of her eunuchs, she sends him to inquire of Mordecai. And Mordecai sends back a copy of the decree so that Esther can read it 
And he says, I want Esther, tell Esther, I want her to go to the king and make a case for stopping this madness. Okay? So please go to the king and get him to stop this. So, verses 10 and 11. Here's how she responds. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to the Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, but there is, um, uh, but, there, there is but one law, that is to be put to death, except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to see the king for 30 days. So here, she's, she's, uh, she's King's, uh, King Xerxes' wife. She hasn't seen him for 30 days. And even though she's his, she's his wife, she can't just walk in and say, hey, what's happening, my husband? She can't. She's not allowed. Nobody's allowed to do that. You can only go see the king if you're asked to go, if, if somebody sends for you. If you show up to the king and you walk into his presence, generally what happens is you get killed. Unless, unless he takes his golden scepter, he's in a good mood, maybe he's had some more wine, he's in a good mood, and he extends the golden scepter to you, then you kind of go, okay, whew, now I can go up and talk to him. So there's a, there's a lot of tension here, and Esther's saying, listen, um, I, I don't want to go to him because I, I might end up dying. So she's got kind of a personal stake in this. Now watch what happens, 12 through 17. And by the way, verse 14 is the God verse in Esther. You know, Esther is the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned by name. So a lot of people say it doesn't belong in the Bible. But if you read verse 14, you can't help but understand that there is God's presence and his, uh, an understanding of, of, of God's sovereignty in this story. So here it is. And they told Mordecai what Esther had to say. Then Mordecai said to them, told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. It's going to happen to you too, Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So Mordecai is saying, look, if you don't tell the king, God's going to figure out how to rise up our defense somewhere else. So either you're going to do this or God's going to do it somewhere else. But then he says this, okay? Um, from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And he says this, and who knows whether you have come not, whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Very famous verse. Who knows, but that you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on me, my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days or nights, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go, and if he kills me, he kills me. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So there's your God verse. Sometimes we all need to be reminded of God's power and sovereignty, and that's what, that's what Mordecai does with Esther in verse 14. He says, look, you need to understand, God has chosen us. He's going to figure this out in some other way for us. 
And still, you have to understand, this took great courage on Esther's part. She makes a good argument. I don't want to go to that guy. He's a maniac, okay? <laughs> he kills people, all right? And it's not just the law. It's that it was the law, and she's a woman. Here you go, a little more um, Old Testament understanding of, of how men felt about women. Uh, you don't have to turn there. But in Judges 9, again, one of the most interesting stories in Judges let me read five verses to you. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city of, of Thebes, and all the men and women and the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. He'd rather be killed by his armor bearer than a woman. That would be so, he's dead. How much more, are you really going to be that humiliated when you're dead? He's not going to notice. I guarantee you. He's not going to notice. And his young man came and thrust him through and he died. So there you go. So this is set up now. All right. So faith, trust, courage. These are all characteristics of Esther. And you know, that's what we're called to in this culture as well. Hope you understand that. Whether you're a woman or a man, that's what we're called to. And, and we live in a culture that demands acquiescence. So I know it's hard. I get it. I get that it's hard. Uh, Schrader used to say this all the time. We need to resist the world when the world demands that we do something God forbids or demands that we not do something that God commands. That's when we have to push back. Uh, I have a little personal story about this. Um, I had spent uh, two years going to Grand Canyon University to get a a new bachelor's degree in uh, biblical studies, and then I had spent four and a half years at Fuller Seminary getting my Master of Divinity. So I was six and a half years in religious school with people who kind of thought the same way I did, generally. I did go to Fuller, but at any rate, <laughs> thought generally the same way I did. Uh, then I decided, rather than pursuing my PhD in Old Testament history, I love the Old Testament, I decided I was going to try to, I was going to apply to Arizona State University and work on a master's in human communication theory. And if I got in, that's what I would do instead of doing a PhD in Old Testament uh, history. And I got into ASU. On the night before my first class in August of 2001, I had trouble going to sleep because I was like, I just spent, you know, six and a half years at GCU and Fuller where I was with people who thought like me. Now I'm going in, I'm, I'm essentially going into the belly of the beast. I mean, even their mascot is Satan, you know. So this is a problem, okay? And uh, I don't know how they're going to accept Christians in there, especially one with a master of divinity. Anyway, I had trouble sleeping. Uh, three different, and, and at that time, I, I, was, um, I was just not that familiar with the book of Esther. Um, I was woken up at about 1.30 in the morning, and, and literally in my mind was, who knows but that you have been chosen for a time such as this. And I got up and I thought, well, that's weird. I went back to sleep an hour later, woke up again, who knows but that you have been chosen for such a time as this. 
That's really weird. Went back to sleep. About an hour later, woke up again. This strong voice in my head. But who knows that you have been chosen for such a time as this. I said, that's it. I got to go figure this out. So I went out and I read Esther. I said, ah, that's where it is. Now, I, I want you to understand, I'm not saying I'm Esther. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that I believe very strongly this is one of those eight or nine times in my life where the Holy Spirit specifically spoke into my spirit some encouraging words to be able to say, listen, you're going to have to go and do this. Okay? Um, ASU might actually benefit from somebody who has a different perspective on things. Okay? And by the way, um, human communication, the human communication discipline and human communication theory is just loaded with secular humanist thinking and progressivism. It was not easy. But it was interesting how toward the end of my degree program there, I, I was no longer the weird Christian guy, but rather I was the guy that people would quietly and behind the scenes come to when their life was falling apart and say, what do you think? That was interesting to me. So God used me in that, in that situation, even though there were times when it was, there were times when I was in class where I, it, was, it was so hard not to yell at people because of the things that they would say, you know. I was like, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't yell. Anyway, sets up the story. Here you go. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, off with her head. No, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even up to half my kingdom. Right there I would have been, let me have half your kingdom. But she's like, ah, I got something else on my mind. Okay. And Esther said, If it please the king, let Haman come today to the feast that I prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, So what is your wish? It'll be granted to you. What is your request? Even half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow. And I will do as the king has said. I love this strategy. She's teasing it out. She's so good. That's so wonderful. I love it. I love the strategy. Then 9 through 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad in his heart. Because he'd been invited to this feast with the king and queen. He's the man. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he would never rose nor trembled before him, Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he went and he sent and he brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman, <laughs> Zeresh becomes an interesting character too. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons. So he's got a little king starter set now and he's trying to act like a king, you know, okay. So he recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, he had 10 of them, all the promotions with which the king honored him and how he was advanced above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then, then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king, come with the king to a feast that she prepared. 
and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Do you have somebody in your life who can ruin your life just by their mere presence? You don't have to answer that, by the way. <laughs> all right. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, so, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. 50 cubits is 75 feet high. Here's what an ancient Persian gallows was. They would take a very large tree that had a trunk that, in this case, was at least 75 feet long. They'd not, uh, cut down the tree, and they would shave down the trunk of the tree into a sharp point at the end. Okay? Then they'd get a bunch of guys to pick it up, and they would run. They, uh, other guys would hold, like supposedly Mordecai, they would hold him, and these other guys with the trunk of the tree would run him through in his torso. That's the gallows. And then there was a hole that would be dug there. And then they would take the guy who's not dead yet. He's doing this, okay? And they would put the, uh, the tree trunk with the guy up there into the hole. And he, that's, he, would, he would bleed out up there and die. Five to ten minutes. He'd be dead, okay? Now, what's interesting about that is that this is original crucifixion. The Romans took this idea and said, we can improve on this. If we nail the guy to the cross, it won't be five or ten minutes, but we can make this torture last for hours and sometimes even days. So if you read about ancient Roman crucifixion, they perfected this art. If you read about ancient uh, Roman crucifixion, sometimes a person would be crucified and would be up there alive for six or seven days. Now, Jesus didn't suffer that. He was up there for a few hours. But it was not uncommon that these criminals would be up there for days with the animals coming and people coming by and spitting on. Anyway, this is the original, there's some irony here. This is like the original crucifixion, okay? The Romans just perfected it. Now the tide turns, chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, so while Haman's having his party and commiserating, the king couldn't sleep, and he said, bring the chronicles and read those to me, and that, that'll make me fall asleep. Okay, so uh, President Biden says, uh, bring me the Constitution, let me read that, and I'll fall asleep, or whatever it is, okay? And it was found written uh, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court because Zeresh had told him, go and tell the king that you're going to hang Mordecai. So Haman goes down to the palace. <laughs> he walks in at just at this moment. Isn't this, I love this, it's so beautiful. It's better than anything Hollywood has ever put out, Okay. And I know there's a veggie tales about this, but anyway. <laughs> so the king's young man who attended him said, um, nothing's been done to him. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is standing there in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, 
Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the, and the horse that the king has ridden, on, uh, on, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. <laughs> Come on, this is great. This is great. I love this. Okay. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse. And he dressed Mordecai, and he, <laughs> Haman led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He says, I'm just going back to my regular life. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then these wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely you will fall before him. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried it to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Can you see all this coming together now? I just love this stuff. This is so good. Okay. So, now, chapter... That was seven, right? I'm having trouble with this uh, air conditioning. I wish it were winter again when we didn't have the air conditioning on. All right. So, chapter eight. What? That was six. Oh, we're starting seven. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So, the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered him, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king... Let my life be granted for, for me, uh, me for my wish and my people for my request. Oh, this is getting interesting now. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. <laughs> I'll bet. And the king, now watch this. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for, for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Ham at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the, king, the wrath of the king abated. Do you see some sort of substitutionary atonement in the midst of that as well? So you see a little foreshadowing of, of the cross of Christ there as well. So, now, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was, uh, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave the ring to Mordecai. And, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So you need to understand that the signet ring gave him power of attorney of the king. So, so now Mordecai can do whatever he wants, essentially, just like Haman could. It's a power of attorney thing. It, you seal documents with it. Um, it's, it's something that um, uh, is, has the authority of the king. Okay, so now Mordecai has that. So then let me summarize verses 3 through 17. And this is a little weird for us, I understand. But here's what happens in these these, uh, 15 verses. The order written by the king at Haman's urging that all the Jews be killed cannot be rescinded. That's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Can't be rescinded. So Esther begged the king to allow them to write a new order that would allow the Jews to fight back. Okay? So there's still going to be violence, but it's not going to be just this wiping out. There's going to actually now be a war. And the Jews are going to do pretty well in this war, actually, we find out. And it's interesting because when the new edict went out, there was great rejoicing in the communities of the Jews, of course. They were like, yes, we can fight back now. We might be saved. But what's interesting is the book also records that there was also some rejoicing in the, in the community of the Persians as well. Because the Jews actually had a pretty good reputation with the Persians. Okay? So, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, so the original edict by Haman was written in the first month. Now the twelfth month is when this genocide is supposed to take place. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So again, just summarizing verses 2 through 19 in chapter 9. This ended up being a rousing victory for the Jews. This was only supposed to take place over one day. uh, But interestingly enough, the king allowed it to happen for two days in the city of Susa. So the first day in Susa, 500 Persians were killed by the Jews and no Jews died. In the second day, he said, yeah, let it go on for another day. Another 300 Persians were killed in Susa, and no Jews died. But the interesting thing is that the Jews did not take any, any um, uh, spoils of war. They didn't, they didn't take any of the possessions of the Persians, which they had every right to. In the rest of the kingdom, now this is from India all the way to Ethiopia, this war went on for one day. 75,000 of the king's army were killed by the Jews. The Jews had a rousing victory in the midst of all of this. Okay? But the Jews didn't take any plunder there either. This was a spiritual war for them. It was not one for spoils. Okay? Then you look at verses 20 through 22. Let's see if I can find those verses. There we go. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 9. 
And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th month day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year, year by year, is the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned from, uh, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So this is the establishment of the Jewish holiday Purim. How many of you have heard of the Jewish holiday Purim? It's not considered a major, major holiday, but it's, it's celebrated by the Jews um, all over the world. Uh, this year, 2023, Purim was on March 6th and 7th. And like I said, one of the things they do during Purim is they read the whole book of Esther out loud. And during the book, they boo the name of Haman. And they boo it every single time that they say it. They boo it. And they have a big feast, a lot of food. But the centerpiece, and please, uh, we want to get rid of all these cookies. And by the way, those of you who had these cookies, they're pretty good, right? Pretty good. My uh, sister-in-law made them. They're very, very nice. I'll hold up one and then put it away so that you don't take that one because my fingers touched it. These are very important to the celebration of Purim. Notice they're made in, in triangles. Okay, It is said that Haman always wore a triangle-shaped hat. That was his trademark. And so these are called, in, in uh, Hebrew, they're called hamantashen. And what that, but what that means is they're called Haman hats. So they eat Haman hats during Purim. And the Haman hat is like a shortbread cookie molded into the triangle, and then it always has some sort of fruit preserve in the middle. Okay? Um, my sister-in-law, Renee, makes these all the time. She's really good. She's a really good baker anyway, but she's really good at this. And uh, in the past, she's put uh, raspberry, strawberry, pomegranate, uh, sometimes lemon. Uh, these are made with apricot or apricot, made from real apes. Okay. Um, anyway, they're very good. So I, we brought Haman hats. We always... We never teach Esther without some Haman hat. So, um, Bob, sorry? Hamantasha. Yeah. So there's about 20 left. She made 60. And if you don't eat them all, those of you that came in late, if you didn't get one, you got to come up here and get one. At least take it home to somebody if you're not going to eat it. And, and I've got sandwich baggies up here. If you just want to take a few home, you can do that too. But I, 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 I'm on whole 30, so I can't eat any of these, all right? I'll take that one home to Jackie. All right. So that's the story of Esther. Chapter 10 has three verses in it, and it's just sort of wrapping things up. Um, but I want to end with a little bit of application through, uh, through Esther. Through Esther, we learn these, I think, important and helpful truths. Esther was a leader. She was a reluctant leader, but nevertheless, she was a leader. And, and what she demonstrates here is that leadership often involves the willingness to do what others won't do. Now, I recognize that it took some prodding from Mordecai, but it only took one prod. Okay? I mean, really, you're sitting there thinking, you know, Xerxes was a little nuts. And it was clear that he had killed other people who had gone into his presence without permission. 
So if I were Esther, I'd be, and, and he hadn't called for her for 30 days, so he's already tired of Esther. It's just weird, okay? But she's like, I don't want to go, but she went anyway. She took her life into her own hands by going. Second of all, leadership often, often involves the willingness to do what is right, even if it's going to cost you everything. Okay? Third, leadership often means rethinking your position. That was the hardest one for me to write down here because I hate that part in leadership myself. You know, I'm kind of one of those guys that once, is, you know, once my mind is made up, okay, I've got some extra information for you, Frank, that would be really helpful. Ah, it's too late. Okay. And then number four, leadership often means listening to wise counselors. Um, you all know what doppelganger is, right? So there's... All of us, there's somebody out there that looks just like us, right? Doppelganger, okay? So um, I can never remember this guy. Randy Travis. People say I look like Randy Travis. That's my doppelganger, okay? Now, here's when they decided I looked like Randy. Nobody ever said that before this happened. Do you remember um, 10 years ago when Randy Travis um, got got into a bad car accident and he was actually driving under the influence of alcohol and got arrested for it. So it was when people saw his mugshot after the accident that they said that I looked like him. So it's not the good Randy Travis. <laughs> uh, when I was younger, um, people said that I looked like uh, a little bit like Tom Hanks. And then when I was younger still, there was a show on television, and most of you are not going to remember this show, and even those of you who are my age won't remember it either because it was a terrible show, but there was a show called Holmes and Yo-Yo. Okay, there was a character named Yo-Yo they said I looked like. His name was John Shuck in real life. Anyway, they said I looked like him. Anyway, that's Doppelganger. Warren Bennis, who's a leadership guy who wrote a lot of really helpful leadership books in the 90s, he says that in in um, leadership and in business, there's something called the doppelganger effect. Now, that's not when you, you have people who look like you, but it's leaders who surround themselves only with people who think like them so they never get challenged in anything. And that's a leadership problem. You ever seen that out in the marketplace, maybe? Somebody's very careful about who they surround themselves with so that they never get challenged. They're only affirmed confirmation bias and all that stuff. I'm telling you, that's, that's a really hard thing to fight through, but it's also why we work very hard um, in the church to have um, people who see things differently in leadership positions so that we can, we can get helpful perspectives that may not necessarily always make us comfortable. Because I'd really like not to fall into what Warren Bennis, Warren Bennis calls the doppelganger effect. Here's the last thing that I want to say about this story of Esther. This might be the most important thing. Notice how I saved it for the very end when you're ready to go home. Okay. Uh, there's an Old Testament scholar named Barry Webb who has written a wonderful commentary on the book of Esther. And he writes this. If Haman had succeeded, the Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed and the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham's descendants would have come to an end. There would have been no fulfillment in Christ, and therefore no gospel, and no Christian church. Nothing less than that was at stake. That is why Christians should read the book of Esther, 
not just as a story told about the Jews, but for understanding their own heritage and to honor the woman that God chose to save his people. That's, that's a great memorial for Esther. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think this is one of the best books to read. I, anybody wants me to teach Esther, I'm all in no matter what. I'll move my calendar around to be able to teach this book. Because I don't think it gets taught very much in Christian churches or in churches, period. So let me pray. Next week, Abigail and Stacy Barrett's going to join me. Looking forward to that. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this history. And thank you for how you worked in and through the lives of Esther and Mordecai and even Xerxes. We thank you for that. Uh, we thank you for the foreshadowing of Christ in this story, but also just the, the clear um, the clear declaration of your sovereignty, which we put our faith, hope, and trust in. We thank you for that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. See you Sunday. We start Romans chapter 8 on Sunday.